to the nomcast the netflix original movie podcast i'm your host andrew morgan you can follow the show at nomcast pod on twitter and instagram and you can check us out on the web at nomcastpod.com all right thanks for joining us award season is heating up here in the film community golden globes are this sunday which is always kind of insane and always controversial in some fashion but it does usually start up the Oscar conversation in earnest with who got nominated and, of course, who won. All these actors and films trying to make a case to be nominated at this year's Oscars, which have their own nominations being announced on March 15th. Speaking of the Oscars, I will be a guest on the film review podcast, Is It Worth It?, with David Long and Craig Fields over there in the U.K., I'll be on the third episode, I believe, of their Road to the Oscars series, where we will be breaking down the best director category, so I'm really excited to do that and have you all hear it. I think it will be out on Friday this week, so check their feeds for that later on in the week. But as for today's episode, I brought on film critic Morgan Roberts from In Their Own League to review a couple of high-profile Netflix titles with some amazing actresses at the center of their stories. We'll discuss Golden Globe nominee Carrie Mulligan and her new film The Dig, which is a Netflix historical drama where she is opposite Ralph Fiennes as they embark on an incredibly important excavation in England on the brink of World War II. And we will also talk about the current number one film on the Netflix top 10 in the U.S., I Care A Lot, with Golden Globe nominee Rosamund Pike. She plays a crooked legal guardian who drains the savings of her elderly wards until she meets her match when a woman she tries to swindle turns out to be more than she appears. That movie has dominated a lot of discussions over the weekend, so I'm excited for you to hear my conversation with Morgan Roberts. It's a really insightful and fun discussion about these incredible leading ladies, their latest ventures, and their chances in the awards race going forward. So stay tuned for that. We will bring all that to you right after these messages from my team at Forgotten Entertainment. Thanks for listening. Forgotten Cinema is getting romantic for our eighth season and just in time for Valentine's Day as we cover the 90s ensemble drama, Beautiful Girls. We'll then do a complete 180 as we dive into some spy films, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and Spy Game. We'll find out why white men can't jump and whether you should shoot to kill while enjoying a Frankenweenie. Nope, that doesn't make any sense. You know what else doesn't make sense? This season will also feature our 100th episode of Forgotten Cinema. Feels like 100 years. Don't I know it. Forgotten Cinema. Never stop, never stopping. Yes, that's a hint. Part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Do you like beer? Do you like podcasts? Do you like beer podcasts? Then check out Cracking One Open, a podcast about brews, news, and pop culture reviews. Every week, we crack open a new craft beer from breweries around the country. And sometimes the world. We'll talk about how it was made, what's in it, the history of the brew, and the brewery. Then we'll give our tasting notes, and while we're finishing up, we'll talk about some of the latest goings-on in the world of pop culture. So check out Cracking One Open with Mike and Elise, part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. 
All right, Morgan Roberts is here. You can read her reviews on In Their Own League, Shuffle Online, and Filmotomy. And now you can hear her on her new podcast, the Untitled Cinema Gals podcast. Morgan, thanks for coming on the show. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I, like uh, I told you off air, I've been listening to your podcast. Congratulations on that. It's a great new venture for you. Uh, I like your writing, and now this is kind of a new foray uh, to get into that. It's off to a great start. It's basically like a, a like a good portion of your written work. You you've done episodes so far on you know a lot of strong female leads like Amy Adams and and most recently Carrie Mulligan, who is someone we'll be talking a lot about on the podcast today uh, because she is one of the two lead characters in the new Netflix historical drama The Dig which I've been chomping at the bit to talk about. I know it's been out for a few weeks, so I'm a little behind the eight ball on that. Um, but I'm excited to talk about it with you today. Uh, but we'll be also be covering the the film that is currently number one on Netflix right now, uh, I Care A Lot. And I should actually say more specifically in the U.S. because I learned from Twitter that it is on Amazon Prime basically everywhere else in the world. Um, but it is Netflix here in the U.S., um, but I Care A Lot uh, stars the always impressive Rosamund Pike, and we'll kind of do a nice overview of her as well, because she landed herself, surprisingly, I think, uh, in the now awards conversation with her Golden Globe nomination for that film. Uh, but first, I want I want to stay here with Mulligan for a bit. Uh, she's clearly having a critical breakthrough this award season. Uh, she's been recognized through some critical bodies or smaller award show stuff in the past couple of years with Mudbound and Wildlife. But she hasn't had like a widespread full scale critical appreciation in a while. Um, you know, maybe since an education, to be quite honest. I mean, uh, which is weird because she's had some of her more iconic roles in between. Uh, but, you know, this one, you know, it kind of, you know, it lands her back in maybe her most signature role with Promising Young Woman, and, and it has her squarely in the Best Actress chase at the Oscars. Um, as a person who dedicated an entire episode of your podcast One whole to her episode. Career, I know. <laughs> well, of three, so that means something, at least at this stage. Uh, what do you think makes Carrie Mulligan such a standout actress in your mind? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that she really has curated... Uh, filmography as well as stage work that mm. is very like adaptable and like no two projects that she's in ever feel the same. Um, you know, you mentioned like wildlife that is extremely different from an education. And then shame is somewhere all the way out in left field in comparison to the great Gatsby, which is in a whole completely different, like, time zone and dimension <laughs> sure. so I, I just think that she's really curated an ability to not just do work that's not similar but still ground it because all of her characters are extremely human or you can get a lot of senses of she's in our episode we call her a feminist icon because she really is like she plays so many strong women who have agency in their own right and we'll talk about the dig. And I think that she's kind of like a quiet feminist hero in that film. I would and agree. Yeah. I just, I just think that she has been able to really navigate doing work that has some kind of meaning to her. And I think when an artist 
can feel something in the work that they're doing that translates on screen. Yeah, it definitely shows in the work. Like you were saying, she's extremely choosy, and I think for good reason. And even the dig, because we'll get to that in a minute. I mean, she wasn't the first choice, but ultimately, I think when I was watching this movie, for the people who were previously signed on to that film, I I love that it actually ended up in Carrie Mulligan because some of the moments in there, some of the quieter stuff... The, the bigger moments like, it originally was landed in the lap of Nicole Kidman mm-hmm. and was rumored for Kate Blanchett at one point, too. I just feel like even though the age discrepancy uh, of the actual real life character is there, I, I feel like she fits perfectly because I, I feel like looking at her career, she's so good at being understated or at least mm-hmm. she has enough range to do basically anything she wants but she's good at fitting into the character that she's supposed to embody you know even with promising young woman she kind of has to play you know a bipolar version of herself she's playing a character in within a character you know so there's many different versions of even just her character's self that she has to play and she's really adept at doing all of that and i find that to be some of the more impressive stuff. I mean, I believe you even go over in your podcast that she even has like a musical side to herself. Like she, she literally runs the gamut and it's one of the more impressive people working right now. But like I said, it's, it's it's sad that we're talking about her uh, breaking out in a way in 2020 when she last was recognized on a full scale in 09, I believe, which is, terrible for considering the career that she's had yeah she's kind of one of those people where it's almost like a gary oldman kind of thing where it's like oh we recognize that they're very good at what they do but we take that for granted because every single time she's on screen even if it's not the best film i.e the great gatsby um she's still captivating and really understands her character and really understands her place within the story and it's you know you can forgive all the other things when all you're focusing on is her and I think the quiet thing too when you look at 2011's drive that was one that was such a quiet somehow super violent but also extremely understated in the performances and if you didn't have someone, if you had someone like a Nicole Kidman or a Kate Blanchett who are fantastic at what they do, they don't always hold quiet moments no. as well. And that whole film is just quiet moments. For sure. And and, and I know you guys uh, covered Inside Lewin Davis as well, where it's like this smaller role, but some of the best lines, and you even said how it's like the audience kind of looks through her in a way or the reactions. Mm-hmm. She's kind of mirroring what we're going through at the moment. And it's it's, a, it's an incredibly important role. And I think she understands something like that where she doesn't need this ultra meaty, you know, chew up the entire movie scene to do good work. Mm-hmm. And I, I appreciate that of her. And Getting to the dig now, uh, this movie came out a few weeks ago, and I was surprised. I mean, a lot of times, sometimes in an, in an Oscar race, you know, you'll get another studio, in this case Netflix, to kind of put out a movie to kind of just be like, oh, she's 
hot right now. Let's put out what we have of her and mm-hmm. try to almost take advantage. So I was thinking this would be like kind of maybe a nice film, maybe something very forgettable, but maybe something that would just keep her name going that Netflix would take advantage of. And I was so surprised at how I reacted to this film where I, I thought, you know, much like the, the dig itself, uh, the excavation itself, it's so layered. It has so many surprises, complications, and heart uh, mm-hmm. at the center of it that I was uh, I was not blown away from a, a technical standpoint, especially in the beginning. It was very actually almost like a, I thought, a clumsy way to open. But once that movie got going, I was in tears a couple of times in this film, and I was so impressed, uh, maybe because I'm a dad, that just those moments with... Uh, Archie Barnes, I believe his name is, who plays young Robert. Oh, my God. <laughs> Anytime that kid was in, like, those super heartfelt scenes, either, you know, uh, in reaction to his mother's health or any of those things, it just it just hit me right in the heart. Uh, but for everybody else who maybe hasn't seen this or, or is interested, um, this is a movie by Simon Stone, who is known for The Daughter. Not a, a huge resume on him. Uh, it stars Carrie Mulligan as Mrs. Pretty. Uh, Ralph Fiennes as Basil Brown, who is the excavator here, and Lily James, who is now kind of this Netflix all-star, kind of gaining more traction between Rebecca this year. She did the the Guernsey uh, and the Potato Peel. I, I can't remember that the entire title. title uh, the longest title. The longest title. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, really carving out a career for herself, um, you know, after Darkest Hour, kind of getting some stuff in uh, more prestige roles out of that. Uh, and you have Johnny Flynn here, Ben Chaplin. It's a very deep cast and, and and is an impressive, almost more ensemble thing where we were talking about Mulligan. You know, she's not, you know, this big overarching lead. She's this kind of character that is the glue a lot to the movie. And really, uh, even in a historical perspective, her character you know, is so necessary to be the backbone while also dealing with her health here. Uh, for anyone who, you know, has, don't doesn't know the story, it's basically uh, an archaeologist who embarks on a historically important excavation of Sutton Hoo in 1938. Um, it's an incredible story, and I, I thought... Even though uh, I think at first watch, Ralph Fiennes' uh, <laughs> accent was an interesting thing to endure, I, I feel like once I got in the pocket of this movie, it just grabbed me. What did you think of The Dig upon your watch? So one of the things that I did do was I avoided learning about any of the people beforehand because I would mm. kind of heard some mumblings that um, Carrie Mulligan was much younger than the person she was supposed to portray. Yeah, and, the real life is 54 years old, I believe. Yeah, and I was like, you know what? What if I just don't learn anything about them and just treat this as a movie and not so much of a historical retelling of something? Right. And that is much more enjoyable because once you do kind of start to dig into it a little bit more, you're like, okay, this is for drama. This is to kind of add some complication here. This person didn't really exist. But if you're looking at it from like a beautifully shot beautifully acted british period piece then it's a really solid film yeah and surprisingly i mean for how much 
attention she's getting for a promising young woman. This film ended up on the long list for BAFTA, the the British mm-hmm. awards, uh, for eight categories. I mean, it landed in best film, best British film, best director, leading actor, cinematography, costume design, the whole works. And it's impressive that, it, like, I think a lot of people didn't maybe catch on to this movie at first blush and now are kind of seeing it after the, that long list came out. And yeah. I know at least um, my letterbox got more interesting with the dig popping up more often for sure. And like I said, I was I was quite impressed. I mean, uh, overall, like the scores are probably around where it should be. I mean, 7.2 IMDb, 73 Metascore, 88% tomato meter and 80% audience score. That's really solid for a movie that I thought was going to be kind of this overlooked piece of the Netflix schedule because I always laugh like in a normal year, uh, you know, January is kind of and February are like the dump, you know, like everything else gets Mm -hmm. right. But with this extended Oscar year, you're just like, okay, well, if award season's going through basically the end of February now, and and Malcolm and Marie, something that they thought was going to go further, and including I Care A Lot, apparently, that we'll talk about soon, got a little bit of play, they were still throwing haymakers into January, where this time last year I was like, am I going to cover this Tyler Perry movie that sucks that everybody hates? Like, it's a little bit different in terms of that kind yeah. of reaction. You know, this came out at a time where it can actually still be in contention if it got enough play. And obviously the BAFTAs agreed to some extent, but I, I, I'm shocked that that it goes through. And I'm shocked, you know, even for how much, you know, the big time actors cared. Like Ralph Fiennes actually in real life helped establish an archaeological field school where he lives uh, not too far from the actual dig site. So you figure like he's you know, really entrenched in this type of story and gets into it. And you can tell he was kind of really into his character. Um, I, I I thought, you know, there's a lot of heart here. There's a lot of tragedy. I, I did end up looking the real story. It was good enough that I did look up the real story stuff afterwards. Yes. And I and think that says a it. lot. Exactly. Yes. But I think it also says a lot about the movie when you're watching it and you're just like, if I didn't care, I'm not Googling afterwards. Mm-hmm. But to to your point, too, like, yeah, there's a bunch of made-up characters here, like proxies for other characters, mm-hmm. or they move the timelines around to make it seem more interesting, even if the story is kind of true. So it's like any other historical drama. You know, like they try to make it fit. Yes. And I think, uh, you know, they made a great effort with the screenplay here written by Maura Buffini, who did Jane Eyre. Um, you know, so it's not like they just pulled someone off the street here. That's some real class and some real pedigree here. So I think they did this movie justice, and, and I was surprised at how much I liked it. Yeah, it was. And, you know, it's really interesting, the more we kind of talk about it, is just like the little things that they put in there for that heart and that humor, because there was that scene where the pi- there's a pilot that goes into... Right. Uh, crash lands into a body of water and they have to go try to retrieve him. And our little buddy, Robert, is there watching it. And, you know, Carrie Mulligan's character is like, please kind of take him out of here. And Lily James's character does the thing of, 
hey, I need to do this. Can you help me do that? And he was like, oh my gosh, yes. And it's like, that is just, you do that with children because you're like, look, I don't know how much they understand what's going on. So let me give them some agency in this potentially traumatic moment and let's get them out of here. And it was just so, I don't know why that moment stuck out so much to me, but like it was those little things that they kind of put in there to remind you that at the end of the day, we're talking about people. They're digging up artifacts of real people and we're looking at real people. Yeah. You know, for, for how much we keep talking about Carrie Mogan, her family is the backbone of this story. I mean, Mm -hmm. otherwise, you know, I, I actually appreciated the score a lot in this film because to make the digging seem exciting (laughs) they were doing a lot of heavy lifting where i was like yeah let's get through this mound let's do this you know where it's like i wouldn't feel that way if i was watching say an episode of bones or something i'm not getting that involved but this movie which centers around such possibly you know kind of a boring or ho-hum process yeah, that gets so you tedious to, to just right. sit there with a toothbrush and go like is this right just more dirt or is yeah, this, this something yeah this isn't jurassic park this is the difference between whether they're finding vikings or anglo-saxon i yes. mean it, this is not exactly something that would be in my nature to be excited about and my goodness the, the, between the score and the performances and you know the direction enough to to have a propulsion mm-hmm. with that kind of work is impressive and to make this layered story where you have side relationships that matter the 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 backdrop of world war ii isn't just something to throw upon this film it actually means something between you know uh the deceased husband uh, of mrs pretty or her cousin here that's in the fold who's going to be enlisted or you know, just the simple, you know, going to a bar and, and, and preparing for World War II. I mean, there's a lot of things here that really sh- add to the humanity by having the war backdrop. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Like, because, you know, that's also another thing is they have, many of them had lived through the First World War. And right. now they're preparing for the second one. And if you know basic history, you know that the UK was just under siege for years without any help. And so just to kind of see them almost in such a serene place. Right. was just, you know, that juxtaposition was just really interesting too. Yeah, absolutely. And and like I said, I, I, at the end of the day, this movie maybe will get lost in the shuffle unless it does maybe get, the actual BAFTA nominations, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm glad it got the signal boost that it did. And what do you think about this movie as, say, a signal boost for for Mulligan's success? Maybe later on in the Oscar. Sometimes you see these films come through at the end of the year, almost to be like, "Hey, remember how great Carrie Mulligan was a few months ago? Here's another reason to love Carrie Mulligan." And sometimes these things backfire, but I think this film actually does help as a signal boost. Uh, yeah, certainly, because I, I think that this one really is kind of with the humanness to it and just the, um, I mean, it's just so pretty to look at. I At the very least, it needs to be nominated for cinematography because it was so beautifully shot. But um, yeah, I think it just kind of highlights and reiterates the fact that she has always been really great at what she does. And this is such a strip because Promising Young Woman is another film that's 
an ensemble cast. She's kind of the backbone for that too, but it is just aesthetically in a different place. It's a roller coaster in a different way. And then the dig kind of brings you back to Pride and Prejudice or Far From the Matting Crowd where you're like, oh yeah, she just make, she just makes you feel so safe and secure in this moment that it's like, yeah, she can literally do whatever the hell she wants. Yeah, she can do so much with a half smile like mm-hmm. that many other people just cannot do, which is so impressive. And And that's what, you know, for a lot of people, maybe that's, or I'll speak for myself. Like it's, it's the frustrating part of that. I don't see her in enough stuff. I mean, she literally like didn't really do anything all of 2019. And she does that, you know, every now and then to where she just, you know, I don't know if she's just living her life or being extremely choosy or however it works. But when she locks on to something, it's meaningful. And especially, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, since she, you know, burst on the scene. I mean, Pride and Prejudice being the first thing she's ever done is very impressive and has capitalized upon that going forward, picking, you know, a lot of things where she has either these great mentors in the movie or working with great talent or working with someone like Rosamund Pike. How do you like that for a segue? I mean, uh, it's a perfect segue. <laughs> They've been in two movies together. I know. And, and so I, I, that's why I loved blending this episode together. I was very excited that we can kind of, you know, build something here because, you know, for how much I liked The Dig, I was very excited for I Care A Lot. Um, this is a movie, as I mentioned earlier, where it's the number one movie on Netflix in the U.S. right now. It's a, it's a movie that has a lot of known names in it. Um, even though maybe say the writer director here, Jay Blakeson is not a household name, uh, but definitely he had enough talent in here that it garnered a lot of attention, uh, enough attention out of the Toronto international film festival, uh, this past year that it was acquired out of TIFF, um, by Netflix, uh, and Amazon prime with a little bit of their rights as well. And as we mentioned, a golden globe nomination for Rosamund Pike uh, for best actress in a comedy musical that kind of caught a lot of people by surprise. And now the story has changed even more now that this movie has come out and is kind of traveling around the circles and getting more into the audience ratings that are kind of changing some of the critical praise that maybe it got initially. Um, we were talking a little off air that it's it's quite awkward right now to kind of talk about this movie for anyone trying to do this without discussing this. But I mean, the, the ratings right now, 6.3 on IMDb with a 66 meta score. So those are at least like kind of close, a little akin to each other. Yeah. But my goodness, the tomato meter is 81% and the audience score is 31%. So, it baffles me that it's that low, but as we also discussed off air, I do have a considerable amount of issues with the film, but nowhere near where I drop it down to that low. So we've seen a lot of kind of disgusting, borderline disgusting oh, yeah. reviews, that uh, these misogynistic reviews that where I was like, oh good, I'm glad I get to come on here and have... Uh, even just a little bit of issues and try to be honest with my feelings where I'm like, oh my goodness, am I going to come off as a monster? <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm hoping 
that we can have a nice, wonderful discourse. But I'd like to start off at least on a positive note. Um, for you, who especially deals with, you know, in their own league, which is, you know, championing women's of all versions of the craft and, and, you know, obviously in your own work, you know, doing some spotlight stuff. What does Rosamund Pike mean to you in, in that regard? Oh, I think so. I mean, I would love to do a whole episode on her because I think that she is maybe one of the most bonkers actresses <laughs> out there because she really she can be kind of choosy some days and then just be like, yeah, I'm going to be in this really random film that has like the weirdest, quirkiest character. And like, <laughs> I'm going to be the only good part in this movie. Right. Um, but like, um, I, I know that there was surprise with the Golden Globe nomination, but she was in a private war a couple of years ago. Yeah. And the Golden Globe, she got a Golden Globe nomination for that. Very rightfully so. Um, right. So it kind of feels almost like how um, Glenn Close and Amy Adams are getting more Oscar buzz this year. And it's like, ooh, could it have been for like not this film? Right. Um, and I think I Care A Lot has a lot of, again, it's not a perfect film wouldn't throw it all the way down to 30%, but also <laughs> yeah, not going to sit here and praise it. Um, you know, but it has like this really zany nature to it. She can be as big as she wants. And I think that she really just champions women. Cause I mm. mean, Marie Colvin, who interestingly, we're recording this on the anniversary of Marie Colvin's death. Mm. Um, and to this day, Rosamund Pike is really, um, really champions her story and um, the truth that she was trying to tell. And I, I think that comes across in her work. And I mean, Gone Girl is another one where she was a literal psychopath in yes. that. And we were like, good for her the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I find it really interesting that now we've decided good for her. That no longer counts anymore. Right. And I think she's another person who now is... Uh, much like Carrie Mulligan being extremely choosy and, mm -hmm. and picking stuff that's, you know, at least with an, something to say. Let's put it that way. Uh, something with yeah. a viewpoint. I mean, even to her film earlier, uh, like uh, probably about, oh my goodness, I don't know how early that was in 2020, but Radioactive that came out on Amazon Prime, you know, doing right. a Marie Curie uh, film, you know, trying to put out, you know, positive, you know, female role models or somebody with you know, an advance in, in science and these other areas that, you know, maybe women get overlooked. I mean, good for her. Absolutely. And, and that is an enjoyable film enough. Uh, this one, I, I, I said it to you a little bit off air. This film to me is a movie that when I saw the trailer, I was like, awesome. It kind mm -hmm. of brought me back into some of the the more twisted dark comedies of like the late nineties during like my high school years. I was like, I can get into like, I'm a odd Miramax movie that, you know, would, you know, hit me off the shelf and, and be like, Ooh, cool. Like kind of like a hidden gem to find, or maybe these lesser known films, you know, that would hap happen to come through and streaming sometimes can provide those type of films. So I was like, okay, cool. Somebody took a shot on this. I'm I'm gonna enjoy this because it's got a bit of a crime. It's got you know, a bit of a, a sociopathic character at its lead. You know maybe we can dive into something here. And again, for anyone who hasn't quite uh, jumped in on this, 
The description is basically a crooked legal guardian who drains the savings of her elderly wards, meets her match when a woman she tries to swindle turns out to be more than she first appears. And, you know, we end up getting tied into organized crime here. We get, uh, you know, kind of this, what I was hoping for as a chess match, in a sense, mm-hmm. um, uh, a war of wits, because I don't know about you, but anytime a film comes along where you're trying to either promote an anti-hero or have multiple bad people going against each other where the rooting interest gets really muddled, the screenplay has to be so good for it to work. And I felt like this movie was pretty great in the first half hour, 45 minutes. And then to me, my champion of this film, Diane Weist, goes to the side and the film I thought went with her. So what did you think of this film overall? I mean, I think it's too long. I mean, Mm -hmm. and that kind of goes to the fact of you have Diane Weist who could have easily been a much bigger chess piece in the latter half of the film. Mm -hmm. And instead of utilizing that, it was just like, how do we get rid of that so that we can just start to pare things down a little bit more? Yeah. Which don't introduce so many people if you need to pare them down later. Unless you're yeah. going to kill them kind of thing. Right. Because uh, we're in a heist-ish movie, um, grifter film. Yeah. Um, I mean, so much of it really is about the structure. They essentially were like, we want to start here and we want to end here. Let's just kind of see where it goes instead of going like, okay, we have to hit every plot point where not to kind of bring back Promising Young Woman, but that was a film where you watch it the first time it's totally out of control you watch it a second time and literally everything falls into place and it all makes sense right and i care a lot everything didn't quite make they didn't fit exactly where it needed to be or they felt a little redundant right and if we had just pared it down a little bit more i don't think some of the other just like static background things that also were slightly annoying would have been as easily seen in a first viewing yeah i mean uh, not to keep banging the drum for diane weist and i will uh, i'm basically turning into an episode of brooklyn 99 all of a sudden but the you know and i i will say i did look up because i thought i was so inventive there are t-shirts that are hashtag weist mode and i'm about to buy them so <laughs> if anyone wants to jump on the weist mode train i'm totally there with them Uh, Because especially between Let Them All Talk and this movie, I was like, yeah, she's back. And not that she ever went away, but goodness gracious, what a career. I love this woman so much. I've loved her since Lost Boys. Let's just keep riding that train. Um, But like I said, once she's sidelined here, the movie kind of goes awry. To me, I enjoyed the core theme. We were kind of talking about Mm -hmm. it a little bit off air of like this the potential of a ruthless kind of loosely regulated and easily corrupted guardianship system that like, you know, you found a good grift. I love a good con man movie, you know, a good, Mm. if the con is on, I'm all about it, but I don't believe Marla's character. When I, when I don't understand a character, I like to list their attributes or, or what we know about them. Right. And to me, we, she would actually be better if she went more full 
bore into being a sociopath because mm-hmm. she is two different people. She she comes off where she she throws out sentences of, you know, that's supposed to be maybe color or motivation where she says she grew up poor or that her mother was is a sociopath or or these flippant lines that are supposed to like give her background and depth. But to me, it's annoying because she's this ruthless woman <laughs> who, you know, will go after anything for specific motivation. And yet, in her business life, she has a lovely girlfriend who she works in cahoots with. You have employees that don't hate her, that seem to treat her very nicely, that she smiles around and is uh, a different human being. I don't get her character. Like, it seems very Mm -hmm. different. Um, and, And I've seen people go, well, if that was a man, would you react the same way? And I hope I would. Uh, yeah. You know, and I, I'm trying to look through just this particular story, but I will say that, you know, I couldn't understand her character all the way through. They don't do a lot to like back up. Like a lot of times in the like there's an interrogation scene in the middle. A lot of times they can utilize those to give, you know, background or or to fill in the the you know, some of the stuff that the details that they need to know about these characters back and forth. And they did not, they they use this time to just be more cheeky. And I thought that was wasted as well. And I thought there were more meatier conversations with Diane Weist, which is why I was like, it would be funnier and better if she was actually pulling the strings from the inside being kind of this, not a Kaiser Sose, but kind of like this, you know, person who they underestimated Mm -hmm. and not that she's got other people that they should worry about that they should actually worry about her yeah and i thought that may have best served the story and i think the thing too is um i mean so many people right now are also characterizing this character as evil and i think that's the part where i'm like okay would you call the anti-hero who is a male evil you don't you give him an academy award for it (laughs) um but so i mean like that's kind of an issue that i have because it's just very blanket statement instead of trying to come to the fact that it's like the reason that you don't like the character as much is because she's just really inconsistent because the writing did not have an understanding of my character has to frame in this be ruthless in this aspect and not have these kinds of connections and then grow into those connections as a film progresses. Right. Cause it's, do we want her to be better at the end or do we want her to be more ruthless at the end? And they couldn't, the filmmaker couldn't make that decision. So despite everyone acting their best effort to give this character context and layers they didn't have as much to work with from the source material in the script. Yeah. And to me, that's a a Jay Blakeson issue Mm -hmm. and not a, an issue with the performance. Cause like for how much I was, you know, trying to, to get excited about the cast that was laid out in the trailer and everything else going in. I don't think anyone disappointed me. I think that they just either a didn't have something to work with or B were like you said, more inconsistent or one note like Peter Mm -hmm. Dinklage, I think doesn't have a lot, you know, he's kind of this one note mobster character that, you know, 
in the end to me doesn't make sense either um slight you know I'll, I'll call it a, it's a spoiler but like this movie doesn't work in those operations but i will say one thing that happens in the movie is a plot line surrounding diamonds that um they make as a huge kind of this plot mm-hmm. device to move through and then for the movie to ultimately not be about that at all and to be completely inconsequential is really bad writing And so on top of the character development issues, they also have plot issues. And so as we we started up top, I am not giving this movie a 30 percent score, but uh, I, I always hope and I always try to give these movies fair shake by watching it multiple times. This movie I watched three times because I was just like, it can't be as bad as I have it in my head. And I tried to give it as much of a fair shake. And instead to me, and I I, I think I remember you talking about this particular uh, director on your podcast with Carrie Mulgan at one point in a negative sense. Um, I found this movie to be like a watered down Martin McDonough idea. Yes. And, and like, yeah. it's because to me, I like In Bruges. I think Seven Psychopaths is overrated. And I thought Three Billboards is one of the worst critically praised movies I've ever seen. And like to me, it falls even like it falls closer to like Seven Psychopaths. Yes. Um, it it's it's a movie that tries to be cooler than it is without trying to get all the details right and the motivations right to get mm-hmm. you to the places you need to go. And I think that's what bothers me. There's so many examples over the years of people trying to emulate people like a Tarantino or people that were like cool in the 90s or early 2000s. Like, all right, we have to try to match this energy, this that they want to try to be cooler and and propel their career in that way. This movie didn't do that for me. It just wasn't for me. I wanted it to be for me so bad. And it just... It just didn't work. If anything, it just made me appreciate Diane Weist more because she is so good in here. And I think the best of this movie is when she's on screen and when she's, you know, really turning up the juice as her arc, unfortunately, mm-hmm. comes to a close. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Rosamund Pike, if you want to watch someone act and do really good work despite almost being set up for failure, then definitely watch this film so you can literally see how someone can act their ass off with a really poor script. But <laughs> uh, yeah, like that whole diamond thing too, that kind of felt like Alice and Janie in 10 Things I Hate About You, where it's like, oh, you're <laughs> going to be really important and then just never comes back. Yeah. And it's it's really frustrating when they sell you what should be a really good film and the product clearly no one read this script and went through a couple of edits or anything. Like it just was like, look, here's my cool, you know? Well, here's the thing. This movie actually would have been worse if it wasn't for, to me, Rosamund Pike, because I heard her on a Netflix podcast called more like this. And, they had her as a featured guest and interviewed her and she talked about the process where she got the script. She thought the story was worth developing and you know, she said, but then she got to work on the character and she fleshed out things, you know, including 
the haircut, including, you know, kind of the way she dresses or the, you know, maybe certain ways she'd speak or other things like that. So she developed it more than maybe this movie deserved. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to give any credit to anyone, it's absolutely like her and other people who, you know, tried to make this above the fray, above what it should be, especially because I thought, you know, at least the interesting part of the grift is actually good, yeah. you know, because to me, if you're going to try to put, you know, a system on notice that that piques my interest uh, all the time. So. If you have a, a quality cast and something I can rally around, that's great. But I think at the end of the day, you're you're making a decision as an audience member to go, who am I rooting for? Mm-hmm. What do we talk? Where do we go from here? And then if the movie ends in a particular way that I will not spoil, but I will say the way it ends, if you want it to end that way, then why were you joining this ride the whole time? Yeah. Yeah. So they kind of counter each other. So, um, and which is another great performance, by the way. I love making Blair. So you know, I w- I would love to to pick his brain one day because I I enjoy his his films and his writing. Which is he's another guy who, if he actually did the screenplay for this, I'd be like, this might have gone yeah. better. But because he gets into that gritty stuff all the time too. So interesting. Uh, group of characters in it, uh, a film that could have been, I think, better than it was, but something in the execution of this screenplay just didn't do it for me. No, no, not quite. But I will say, if you have access to YouTube, there's a really great uh, Last Week Tonight um, segment on guardianship. I recommend <laughs> watching that because it actually kind of explains what like this conservatorship, because everyone's talking about Britney Spears, and I think that this is a really important system between these two films to actually know something about. And um, yeah, and I mean, it's John Oliver, so you can't go wrong being taught by John Oliver. I appreciate your efforts to promote HBO Max on my Netflix podcast, Morgan, but unfortunately we're going to have to edit on YouTube. All <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> yes, don't give the money. Just go direct to the source. Go directly to YouTube. Yeah. Give AT&T nothing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Although I watch that show every week, so I, I'm not going to fake like I don't. But And John Oliver is amazing. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the true story. Yeah, maybe go for, for the deep dive there instead. Or uh, as we've noted, uh, these are two incredibly strong women who have amazing careers uh, maybe go and appreciate one of their past films and go oh, from yeah. there. Wildlife, I think, is still on Netflix in the U.S. There you go. Um, and and Rosamund Pike. I mean, you know, you can always find Gone Girl anywhere. Uh, 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 Private War or any of those are always kicking around. Maybe, a, like we said, uh, even Radioactive is on Amazon Prime. So mm-hmm. I'll be kind and let that go through. Or, you know, she was in a Bond film if you want something a little more... Uh, fun even though die another day is uh, not one of the better ones but you know we'll go from there but uh, I appreciate you coming on Morgan and and really kind of going through this for me um, I I hope that we get a, a new Rosamund Pike you know something to uh, get me over this one a little bit more uh, coming soon and get her back in the true awards conversation before we go because we were talking so much about Carrie Mulligan where do you see, because I am so 
invested in the Oscars, but the best actress category is so loaded. And I literally, I don't know if I have a dog in the fight uh, because there's so yeah. many good ones, especially now that I watched Nomadland over the weekend that I just, those top four. And if, if I had my way to add Zendaya in, in for number five, I, I would, I, it'd be impossible to choose. Yeah. It's well, and I always say this as someone who writes a lot about um, women in the industries that you always find the best actress and best supporting actress categories tend to be um, pretty loaded. Like, I mean, you tend to have a front runner, i.e. you have Frances McDormand winning for three billboards left and right. But if right. Sir Ronan won for Lady Bird, if Margot Robbie won for I, Tanya, if Sally Hawkins won for Shape of Water, no one would have been mad. Everyone would have been like, yes, yeah, she deserved that. So this year just kind of really highlights that because I yeah. think it it is so many women's career best. But my personal favorite performance is Vanessa Kirby in Netflix's Pieces of a Woman. I just... Well done. <laughs> thank you. I just thought it was, you know, another role for uh, women that, you know, has an aspect of a very common thing that many women who have children can experience and for someone who hadn't had that life experience to be able to like, I don't know about you, but I felt pains for those first <laughs> 25 minutes. Like, Oh, it's in, such an impressive opening sequence. It's, it's undeniable. It, yeah. And then, you know, just like the little things that she was able to keep carrying for the, the apple throughout the film, the little nuances of understanding that this is a woman carrying a lot of things internally, but not externally because she doesn't have the kid that she was supposed to have. It was really stellar. I don't think that she's gonna win. That's just my personal favorite. I really think that we might be seeing something for Carrie Mulligan, but we won't know until I think SAG will probably be a really good indicator of Oscar night. I think so too. Uh, it's a good way to put it. I mean. To me, I I, I, I I am the same way like McDormand has gotten so many accolades, but as she's won multiple times, do you give yet another one that always is a complication? And then you have the Netflix effect of like, okay, well, Vanessa Kirby is here, but also Viola Davis. Mm -hmm. Are they going to put their weight behind one or the other? Or is it going to be this cannibalization where maybe they both don't get recognized and then and if Zendaya ends up in the discussion too, that makes it even harder. And which makes, I think, the easier path for Mulligan. But it is such a film that, you know, can be polarizing to some. I don't see why. The message is pretty clear and, and quality to me. But, uh, you know, obviously some people might be taken aback by some things in that nature, which are stupid. But, you know. We're relying on human beings here, so and the academy. Uh, so I, like you said, we'll see where SAG goes, and I think that is actually a, a great next step to see where these go because it's such a large body of mm -hmm. the of the Oscar voting. But yeah, I, if I had to put money, gun to my head, however you want to put it, I'd probably put Mulligan. Mm -hmm. But 
because she has been nominated before but never won. Um, and I think this would be a great next step. And, you know, I will completely credit this podcast right now for putting her over the edge, uh, you know, putting her over the top. Absolutely. So, this will be yeah. when she wins that Golden Globe, we will be coming right back to this podcast. In exactly. This episode specifically. Yeah. Her acceptance speech will start with you who dedicated a whole episode and then just be like, and then she topped it all off by going on the Nomcast. So I appreciate you coming here and, and flying the flag for Carrie Mulligan. And we hope uh, better for Rosamund Pike soon, at least story-wise, even though she, she put in a, a quality performance. So absolutely. Uh, before we get out of here, like I mentioned, uh, you have your new podcast going on and you're always, you know, filling out uh the reviews all over the map uh is there anything that you want to highlight right now or tell people where they can find your podcast um well you can find our podcast over on twitter and instagram at cinema gals the podcast untitled cinema gals comes out typically around friday or saturday we're still figuring it out um (laughs) and then most of my work is over at in their own league um and March is Women's History Month, so look for lots of really good uh, female-centered content there. Excellent. And you always do a great job, so I, I tell everyone so to absolutely go check so it out. Yeah, and In Their Own League is an oppressive collection of people, a lot of people I like uh, to read their opinions. So, you know, good on B over there for collecting oh, yeah. that impressive. Our fearless leader. Yes. Um uh, amazing job and obviously they have a podcast as well that uh you have been on i believe and, yeah, a couple and times. yeah so you know excellent job all the way around i appreciate you coming on thanks so much